Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 304, Karen and Patrick Weeks, Finally, Video Games. Woohoo! I have to toss in that every time we talk about video games. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> alright. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. Emphasize the media this week in particular. This is Brent Bowen. And Christy Cherish. And today we are going to be joined by the Bioware writer and editor. I guess you could call them a team, but I know they probably work independently at some point. But respectively, we're speaking with Patrick and Karen Weeks. Patrick, the writer, and Karen, most notably, the the editor. And we're going to chat with them about how one finds himself or herself in the land of video games and the differences in working in that medium versus prose. And I know Christy was geeking out before, after, during, continues to geek out about that discussion. And I, I will tell you that I wasn't necessarily dragged into that discussion, but I will tell you that it was most it was most worthy her geeking out. They were they were they were just phenomenal in so many different ways. So they really were. They, they chuck- are. <laughs> you're chuckling back there. I so- told, yeah, no, no. I, I I I thought you would enjoy chatting with them. They're they're a blast. I've seen them on panels and uh, I follow them on Twitter and and they always have something entertaining to say. So yeah, and they they're involved in one of my favorite games, two of my favorite games. So well, they were great on Twitter even immediately following the interview because I was I was quick to leave the interview because I had family in town and Karen sending tweets back to my you know I'm posting pictures and they're sending tweets back to my family basically saying hello and checking out the meal that we had uh, had that evening and commenting on our uh, our uh, our courses so <laughs> they, they are highly entertaining on on social media <laughs> very highly entertaining and they'll be highly entertaining in the interview and the best part about this is Christy and I were selfish in that we kept them for about an hour we'll see after editing whether it really pans out to be about an hour but because of the length our conversation will be a two-parter so in this episode you're going to get a portion of that discussion speaking of courses so you're going to get the appetizer with the maybe hint of the entree in this this episode and then episode 305 you'll get the remainder of of that discussion with Patrick and Karen Weeks. But before we chat with them, there are a couple topics. Last week, Christy and I tried to get together to talk about some of the breaking news with the Irene Gallo and tour aftermath. And I had a bit of a family emergency uh, because my grandfather, who I was very close to, uh, his his health declined very rapidly and he, he passed away. And and I had to go out of town for the services and help with some of the preparation of the services, so we didn't get a chance to to talk. But I know we wanted to talk about uh, some of the tour, Irene Gallo, and part of what's become really part of the the puppy's aftermath. I, I've said this before. I'm going to say this again. I think that 
just the way that these debates are unfolding just goes to show how the internet and Twitter and everything, it really dehumanizes people, doesn't it? It In does. a lot of it, it absolutely dehumanizes them. And I and and without getting into yet getting into what what I thought about the situation, um, both sides are very easily. You you can see how both sides are. The individuals on the opposite side have become objects that you can talk about, but they don't really. They really aren't people anymore. It, it's it's weird to watch. It is weird to watch it for for folks. Before we get too far into this, if if folks aren't familiar, so I'm going to level set very quickly mm-hmm. what what transpired. And essentially, Irene Gallo, who's the creative director for Tor, uh, or at least one of the creative directors. I don't know if they have a single creative director or a few. Um, they may have enough work to have a few. And she's also one of the publishers of of Tor.com. Uh, for the short works, and I know they've expanded into some longer works from from short stories on on tour.com. She's one of the publishers there. She made remarks on on Facebook about the puppy's effort, and I'm just going to wrap sad and the the rabid uh, all together because I believe she did that as well, and it's it's pretty well documented on the internet. The remarks she had made around uh, the types of personalities of the, the individuals that are involved in the the puppy's efforts, and made the comments with respect, I think, to some some decisions uh, around a new project that was being produced by Tor. And after that occurred, Tom Doherty at Tor issued a formal statement on Tor.com and expressed, and I believe Irene actually was requested to apologize for her remarks and did. And they issued a formal statement from Tor.com that her remarks were not those of Tor's and that Tor would be open to a number of political views and authors and readers as part of their, you know, their publishing house. And, and then to your point, after that occurred, is that that your recollection of it too? Did that's I get the that's absolutely yeah, no, that's okay. absolutely absolutely my recollection. And I, in fact, even managed to find the original statement. I don't know if we want to link to that or if we want to read it out or if um, well, we'll definitely link to it in the show. Yeah, notes. we'll we'll yeah. definitely we send that along, and we'll definitely link to it. And let we'll let folks. Uh, I don't want her words or anybody else's words at this point, Tom's or anybody else's, to become our words. So there we go. We'll we'll link to those and and let and let people react to that but there was a lot of um, there was a lot expressed online to your point at, after that and uh, whether uh, I, I heard the matter of fact tour.com when when mr. Doherty wrote the the statement on tour.com left the comments open and and I've heard that um, that we've had a couple of authors that have written blog posts and what have you saying that those comments have become a cesspool. And yeah. so, you know, if you have the disposable time to go in and read it and form your own judgment, that there you go. But I, I think what's transpired and what's been interesting to look at is this, and I wanted to chat with you and get your opinion because I know I have a certain opinion about 
what represents an official spokesperson? Absolutely, no, and I, I, I think, uh, yeah, this is this is actually the conversation I've been I've been curious to have with you as well because it's yeah. Anyway, keep going. We just had Laura Ann Gilman on, and I thought she wrote a very smart blog post without getting in all, into all the vitriol of puppies or non-puppies or, you know, any of the political conservative or liberal or um, homophobic, you know, any of the terms you want to throw out. They ain't in there. <laughs> they're not in there. They're not in well, our posts. We, we, we should link to that, too, because I, I know exactly which post you're talking about. The other author, I thought, um, who also did, uh, had a different, slightly different take on it, um, but also had a very well-worded discussion on the topic was uh, Peter Watts, Canadian author. Okay. okay, and I had not, I had not seen Peter's post. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I've got it on, I've got it tagged on my Facebook. I'll, I'll forward it your way and and make sure it's in the, it's in the notes. But I, again, a slightly different, different take on it. Slightly discussion of a slightly different topic as well. But, um, but he sort of he touches on it. What is his point of view? At least, what's the topic of discussion? Because I know Laura. When you look at Laura Ann's blog post, it really is her discussion is really around what represents an official spokesperson. It, it's it has to do with what constitutes, and I'm trying not to paraphrase here because I think people should go read it, read it themselves, and you know, as we said, not putting other people's words on the show. It has to do with whether or not it was a wise decision. So it was a slightly different take in that he talks about regardless of whether or not you agreed with Gallo, whether or not it was a wise decision for her to have posted about that and why he thought and, and his opinions about that. So he, he takes the line of, you know, in general, it wasn't a brilliant move for her to have done and, and maybe a bit of maybe a bit of restraint would have been more in order. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. So again, it's similar topic to what Laura was talking about, but a slightly different take and a slightly different, a slightly different issue about the whole thing. Yeah. And that's where certainly his is around not being wise, where I believe Laura and Laura Ann defends Irene from, and doesn't construe her as being a corporate spokesperson. Yes. So it takes a, di uh, a different slant. Yes. And which I will tell you, based in, in my experience, I would have probably disagreed and would have had a healthy conversation with Laura Ann around what, what constitutes a corporate officer. Yes. I like the way she framed the argument and framed the discussion and the defense around unless you're deemed a corporate officer. But I think what's interesting in publishing is you certainly have individuals that end up becoming spokespeople because of certain subject matter expertise. Absolutely. So I know in my day job, my day job, we have our executive committee uh, who are certainly all considered corporate spokespeople. So if they were to come out and say something in Facebook or Twitter, it would be construed as speech on behalf of the company. But we also have certain subject matter experts, whether it's a salesperson or a product manager or someone who actually is a technical expert. So really actually works behind the scenes, but because of a certain given technical expertise, that person ends up developing a track record 
as a spokesperson. And we view that person as a spokesperson. So they, when they, the first time they speak on behalf of the company, based on that subject matter expertise, or they speak on that subject matter, but then have the company's name attached to their name, they are held to a different standard. Yeah. And I would argue that Irene, because of her role as creative director, and certainly her role as a decision maker, editorial decision maker and publisher for Tor.com, that component of it, that would elevate her to being a spokesperson for the company. Yeah. And in that case, something that the company needs to then have, unfortunately or unfortunately, if if we're going to look at this, and this was the conceit of Laura Ann's post, was if we're going to look at this from the point of view of being a business, and I, I'm the, uh, the lead publicist or PR person for Tor, she most definitely is a spokesperson for the company based on her roles. Yeah within the company. And that that's one place where with Laura and based on my experience uh, on a day to day, my the day job that I live day in and day out that uh, I, I would most certainly have a very healthy conversation with, with Laura and I haven't commented on a blog. I, and I'm like, well, we just we just posted her her show, but and maybe we can catch up over a beer about it, but or or whiskey or wine, yep. <laughs> as, she, as she denoted. But I really liked the fact that she approached it from that point of view. I'm I'm just not sure I agreed with the with the end result. It's a great discussion of the topic that she does, um, and she breaks it down in a very in a very good way. Like she does present her argument. Um, about about the situation incredibly well, um, and but it's interesting because I still have the same sentiments you do for similar reasons um, about why Irene Gallo no is is actually a public spokesperson for Tor, and part of it is 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 that you know um, I'm obviously from a business standpoint I'm not that involved in publishing or any type of corporate PR or, or such. And I don't have that kind of background, but when I used to do sales for, um, when I was a sales representative for, um, for, uh, a microscope company, uh, a while back, I was absolutely, you know, a representative or, or a public face for, um, you know, for, for that, um, uh, for that product and for that company. And I had, you know, there were certain things and it was in my contract of, you know, uh, types of appropriate behavior, that I had to follow both online in person. Like there, there is, you know, a two degree code of conduct, even though I wasn't an, ex- an executive or anything like that. I, I was just a sales rep. You're still a public face of the company. And regardless of whether or not somebody thinks it's fair that that type of weight should be put on you, it, it's, it's a, you know, you can assume that if you are talking, discussing, or you are interacting with the public, um, as part of your job, which Irene Gallo does when she promotes products or she's at conventions or things like that, people are going to look at her as a voice of tour. And yeah. so at any time she says anything. Um, and I think that's I, I, I think that's where the discussion where where the discussion gets interesting is is that um, you know is is that a reasonable, expectation to put on your employees. And I, I think it's one of those scenarios where it's a good academic argument of maybe, maybe not, but the reality is, you know, the public perceives you as the public absolutely perceives um, Irene Gallo as a face of Tor. And, and, well, you put, and I hadn't thought of it this way, but you're right, because she is the decision maker, 
within the company about what types of books, um, what kind of art direction they're going to be, uh, you know, what kind of art direction the books are going to have, and, and to a degree, editorial. You know, that, that's, that's an aspect of, of what the company does. It's certainly an aspect of what the company does, and I think the other consideration is this juxtaposition, and you and I have discussed this ad nauseum earlier with our other puppies episodes and non-anti-puppy episodes or whatever we want to call those, is this whole notion of art, too. So we're trying to juxtapose art with business. Yeah. And so art, by its very essence is emotional it's opinion it can be a very opinionated and i'm not necessarily saying that irene was because i don't want folks to misconstrue my point of view of saying whether or not and mixing the messages of saying whether or not you're a company spokesperson not mixing that with whether i agreed with what irene said or didn't say yeah or with what Tom said or didn't say. Although I will tell you, actually, as I'm going into that and looking at Tom Doherty's statements where he said she does not represent, I would have said, look, we're a business, but we're also a forum for for art yeah. and have a, a diverse set of opinions. And I, I probably would have expressed that statement that he had written and provided quite a bit differently. Yeah. And the reason why I say that, because, you know, I was looking at some of the other blog posts that were out there, most notably Chuck Windig's. Yes, he's, he's, been in, he's been very vocal about it. He's been extremely vocal about it and vocal about, and I, I'm not going to say I agree with everything that, that he, he is saying in his blog post too, because essentially if, if you read his blog post, while I agree with portions of it, there was a portion of it where he said, I don't think anybody should be giving any of the puppies anywhere, any sort of platform. And, mm. and that was a, that was it. Now maybe I misunderstood, you know, dense me. I, maybe I misunderstood the blog post, but he really goes after Tom Doherty and the statement around the defense of some of the puppy elements because Chuck just doesn't feel like they should be given any sort of platform whatsoever. And I, I'm not going to go in. If you want to read his, Chuck's words, you can go read Chuck's words. My ba- I'm, I'm going to jump in now. And yeah, jump you in. Go, I have, you, you know, jump right in. I, so I, I, first of all, I, I love Chuck Wendig's um, work. Um, one of the many authors out there is stuff I like. But any state, so a statement like that really concerns me because it, to me, it's, and, and we talk about this, you know, you and I, Brent, we talk about the whole journalistic aspect of the show. Yep. It it goes too far into censorship and which opinions and which uh, which opinions out there should be censored. It leans more towards that, and that makes me uncomfortable. Anytime we're near, even if I don't agree with somebody, I don't feel it's okay to censor their opinion um, or you know or to omit giving somebody a platform because the problem is is that can backfire drastically. Because you know if you turn that argument around and you said, well, what if what if a lot of media outlets were siding with the puppies and decided that people who were against the puppies shouldn't have a platform? It's It, it turns a different spin on that argument. But he's and, very passionate about it. He is very passionate about it. And I, I would say at some point we, we will censor at some level. Like we, yes. we make editorial decisions and you can call that, I mean, somebody can spin that at censorship. And there, there are certain lines that you and I will draw around not having, uh, around not having certain guests on. And I, I would tell people that that line's probably at hate speech. 
Yes. So yes. we're we're not going to have guests on that are, are that are going to essentially we know immediately come out and just be offensive or try and inspire hate. And that's absolutely true. Um, and that's a very very hard line that we have is that it's and and it's obvious to see when that's when you're broaching into a situation like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking about something a little different. I, I'm I'm thinking of sort of the gray areas of at what point is it censorship versus just simply as you as you put it, or editorial decisions about about just not not broadcasting something offensive. Yes. Well, we may broadcast something offensive. It may just be offensive other than hate. Yes, there we go. We probably have done that, to be honest. Honestly, we have done that. We've done that already. It could just be you and me being offensive on some level. Very possibly. <laughs> this, well, this is where I get this is where I get hate messages about. This is where I start getting the hate email about about her Irene Callow discussion. Oh dear. Yes. Oh dear. Well. I, yeah, I mean, at the risk of us starting to get emails we don't want, I mean, I felt it was important for us to touch on it and some of the some of the smart things, smart conversations that, regardless of where you sit in the debate, again, whether I disagree with Laura Ann and her statement, I liked the point of view that she approached the issue. Yes, absolutely. How, how she, how she apo- approached the issue. She approached that from, and it, it got me thinking about this juxtaposition of business and art and you're going to have individuals that are highly opinionated and are looking for certain things within their art but then at the same time they're still driven by making the almighty dollar absolutely no it's, so and i there there was one maybe two more points i thought that occurred to me um and, and you may disagree, and, and listeners may disagree, but that that came to mind with the whole Irene Gallo thing, and it's you know this idea of wh- regardless of whether or not you think she's a spokesperson for the company, or if you're on the fence of whether or not she thinks she, you think that she's a spokesperson for the company. If you were an author and you were considering hypothetically, if you were an author and you were considering signing with Tor, would that make you nervous? seeing that in the news if you had the option hypothetically if you had the option between signing with tor or one of the other um one of the other major publishers would seeing this in the news and seeing this in in you know social media feeds would that make you nervous and i i think in some cases that's that's the question tor is really at the end of the day trying to you know it has to deal with is you know is that a kind of approach or is um you know, um, were her statements something that could alienate potential business partners? Well, alienate potential business partners and alienate potential readers. Yeah. I mean, you have, and there, and I don't want to go into this too much, but there's been, I've seen back and forth on Twitter and the internet about a potential boycott of Tor, um, from within Tor, from a certain faction, what have you. But I mean, that is an interesting question. That's, and I think ultimately that's probably what led Tom Doherty into making the statement that he made was, I need to make a statement that essentially says all are welcome. Doesn't yeah. matter. Look, the work's the work, and we publish a lot of work, a full book of work, and hopefully you'll find something you enjoy here. Yeah. No, for whatever For whatever reason. Yeah, uh, you find that to enjoy, and they probably have a line where they draw that too. Yeah, <laughs> but it, that line wasn't at 
at some of the puppies comment you know it wasn't at the the at least the sad puppies level yeah it's it's also the very very last thing i'm going to say about it and this this is what i had going around in my my head as i was looking through twitter and facebook and online is that tor is one of the big it's you know one of the major sci-fi publishers out there they're also they're they're a major publisher they are they a division of random house they're, Am I wrong on that? They're a division of Macmillan. Macmillan. Okay, I was wrong on that. So they're a division of Macmillan. Um, but there's, you know, there there are a lot of sci-fi publishers, sci-fi fantasy publishers out there. Um, you know, you've got um, you've got Random House, you've got um, uh, Simon and Schuster, you've got Harper Collins, you've got Hatchet. And what's interesting is that Tor is the only one that got drawn into this, which which is interesting. You know, you haven't seen anything from editorial departments of any of the other publishers, uh, you know, who maybe have a stake in the Hugos or in this debate. Uh, you've kind of seen radio silence. So it, it's interesting that I, I, I thought it was an interesting observation that Tor's very, very wired into the community. Are you certain we haven't seen anything from Bang? We okay, yeah. So Bane, I it hasn't been not that I know definitively. No, I'm just, and I'm, I'm just and asking. I actually I thought about that actually earlier. Yeah, I know some of the editors for Bane are in in my feed, and, and a number of the authors. I think definitely from the authors, we've seen a lot of Bane authors commenting. I don't know if I've seen anybody from the editorial teams. We'll have to look that up. We'll have to look that, that up. Yeah, because I, I I've seen reference now. There's been a lot. You know, this has been vol. I joked when I was at Conquest at, around Memorial Day weekend that uh, the material that's been published about this discussion has now gotten beyond a man at this point, probably a George R. R. Martin trilogy. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's hard to keep up with with all of the vo- with all of the volume. But yeah, I I seem to recall I saw some sort of reference around remarks made by Bain, but we'll have to go and dig. Yeah, and I, I don't know that definitively. Yeah, and it's it's always that catch between rumor versus do you have a screen snapshot? Yeah, um, yeah, but um, yeah, that's true. That's too. true. Yeah, <laughs> Cashing and screenshots. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, to to I, I I could be totally wrong, but to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything coming out of Bane, which which would be an interesting observation. We will have to look that up. All right. Well, we're going to move. Ostensibly, we've been talking about what the Hugo Awards have started. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're going to move on. There are other awards in the world, and we're going to move on a little bit from some of that discussion. So a couple weekends ago, the Nebula Awards were, were presented, and you saw some things that I think people felt like were probably slighted. So just take a step back. If folks aren't familiar the Nebula Awards are essentially nominated and voted on by the members of CIFWA, mm-hmm. uh, Science Fiction Writers Association, and and Fantasy Writers Association. And of so America. you saw of America, yes, <laughs> of America. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thank. Yes, you need to keep me in my place. That's good. Um, and you saw some of the names I think that were recognized, either nominated or awarded, that I. I would venture to say if you were to pull most of fandom felt like probably got left off the Hugo list if they had a beef with the Hugo, the Hugo list. So you saw Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, one best novel, the yep. likes of that. You saw uh, Yesterday's Kin by Nancy Kress, win best novella. And I'm not going to go through all the categories, although I'll get to Guardians in a minute. But Jackalope. Wives by Ursula Vernon, one best short story. And I, I think those are some of the works that 
individuals felt like probably should have made the Hugo list and, you know, with all the kerfuffle, didn't end up getting the list. And they ended mm-hmm. up receiving uh, acknowledgement through through the nebulas. And you may see some fracturing based on these awards if, if the, the trend continues. What was interesting, and I mentioned Guardians of the Galaxy just a moment ago, it actually won the best media award. And that's the one that's really interesting because that was one of the items that was on the puppies list that a lot of people now are you know, one of the items people are boycotting and no awarding and and everything. And and then you go to the Writers Association and they say, you know what, forget all that Hugo business. We're going to go ahead and base it on its merits and we're going to go ahead and we enjoyed the heck out of it. We're going to go ahead and give an award, which I thought was interesting. Which I'm happy to see. I loved that movie. Yeah, I love that movie too. Um, I just think I could listen to that soundtrack. Matter, matter of fact, that soundtrack. I do pretty- listen to that soundtrack on almost loop quite frequently. So yeah, I, I that that's one of the first soundtracks in a number of years that I've actually bought the entire thing and been happy about it. Yeah, likewise, my son. We joked he's redheaded, not quite, not quite as charming as Chris Pratt. But uh, <laughs> after that movie. And of a different era, too. He would have his headphones on and carry around his mom's iPad with that song on loop. And we called him Star-Lord for several weeks after that after that movie came out. Oh, that's fantastic. Because he was looking like a total nerd running around the house. But what's interesting about this, and you and I were chatting about this a little bit before we you know, officially got on, was last weekend, and I missed it. The awards, and it's one of my favorite conventions to go to. It's a single track convention. Uh, it's the Campbell Conference and the Campbell and Stur- Theodore Sturgeon Awards. And it's not the Campbell Award that's given for Best New Writer. It's a different Campbell Award, mm-hmm. folks. But ostensibly, it awards bet the Campbell Award is given to the best novel, and the Theodore Sturgeon Awards given to the best short story. And it differs from the Nebula or the Hugos. And you and I have had this conversation when we had Paul on and we've talked about this is it's a juried award. Yeah. If you go and look at the go online and I'll put a link in the show notes to their uh, finalist list, by and large, it fits, you know, maybe the Nebula list or historically what you would have seen in the Hugo list. But what's interesting, the award recipient is a little bit left a field of what the it, what the voted awards look like. Being yes. that I think, and I'll have to ask Chris McKittrick. He's the he's the organizer and essentially runs the Center for the Study of Science Fiction. He and Kish Johnson, uh, so he's the director, and I believe Kish is the associate director for the Center of the Study of Science Fiction at the University of Kansas, and that's where this is all held. Off to check with them to see how many people are on the jury. If I, memory serves me, it's around six individuals that are on the jury. But the award recipients for it, so for the Campbell Best Novel was the First 15 Lives of Harry August by Claire North. And the Sturgeon Award was given to The Man Who Sold the Moon by Cory Doctorow. So a familiar name for, for na- familiar name, but perhaps maybe not a familiar work for short story, because I don't recall seeing that on a fi- as a finalist on some of the voted awards. And then you and I even were talking on the, the first 15 Lives of Harry August, and people can throw stones at us for being ignorant. Absolutely, and yes. And I'm sure, so I, I'm really we're being afraid. honest. <laughs> we're being honest. I I didn't even, until the finalist list came out six weeks ago, I'd never, not, I'd never heard of that book. Neither. And in fact, I'll go a step further. The only book on that finalist list that I was familiar with and have read is The Three-Body Problem. 
Yeah, and it had others on there. It had John Scalzi's Lock In and some other things oh, yeah. you probably yeah. heard of but not yet read. Yes. Right, or may never read. And, and this was, you know, so this was the conceit of kind of our discussion even pre-us getting on and comparing notes was what's interesting about that is it speaks to one of the problems we've been talking about with all of this. And, and even if I had been able to record that panel at Conquest, discussing the Hugos was one of the major problems we have right now is just the sheer volume of material. Absolutely. And and a lot and sheer volume of, you know, award quality fiction that's coming out and available now. It's, you know, it's, um, it absolutely speaks to no slight of the works that, um, you know, that, that we hadn't necessarily heard of them. It's just, there's so much. Yeah. And it was, it was really interesting because like so much in the novel ranks, so I recall even, you know, talking with Ann Sowers years ago, and this was six, seven years ago at this point now, at least six, where at that point she said that's one of their goals is to publish as many books as they can to find a home, to find an audience. Mm-hmm. And so it is more of a volume play. And at that, you're going to have, if people are getting better, there's more resources available. People are going to become better writers and better authors than what we've seen in the past. They're probably a more award worthy type material and that was even one of the discussions they said there just aren't even enough slots for the hugos for the number of award-worthy materials and what was really interesting about the hugo panel was one of the people i just all-time great people in in fandom that i enjoy is rich horton and he's rich has published a number of anthologies best of anthologies and if folks are uh locust subscribers Rich is the guy, one of the folks, that looks at all the short stories that are in the universe. And it, at one point in time, he was reading thousands upon thousands of short stories every year mm-hmm. to be able to cover for Locus. And he probably is uh, an individual that would be worth serving on a jury like this because he really does try and look at the full universe. And we had lunch this year at the Conquest one of the days, and he said, I can't keep up anymore. I can't. Yeah. He said, I cannot, with all the markets that are out there and all the e-zines that are out there, he said, I can't keep up anymore and read everything. And so he's gotten to the point, he's like, I finally picked up a few novels because I've come to the realization that I'm missing great work on the novel side. There were years would go by, he'd never read a novel because he was trying to try to be the lone representative or one of the few representatives to read every short work. Yeah. And you're kind of the flip side of that, aren't you? I am. I, you know, and, and I'm, I've admitted this before, um, you know, in front of large audiences. I'm not a short story reader. I love some short stories. My all-time favorite is Isaac Asimov's I, Robot. And I've read that multiple times. But even that is kind of like a novel in that it's short stories that tell a much larger story. I'm a novel reader. So I just, you know, I'll see short stories come out. And a lot of it too is there's just so many of them. I wouldn't know where to jump in. And and so my go-to tends to be novels, and I I tend to stick with those. But even then, it's in my social media feed, I'll see 10 novels that, you know, people will say, read this, read this. And then it turns into that they've all loved friends of mine. And, um, you know, or you'll be reading something or, you know, somebody else um, on adventures will, you know, talk about a book and, um I, um, or on the website, we'll talk about a book and, um, it becomes hard to figure out what you're going to pick up. Yeah. It gets you geeked out and you're like, darn it. Not an, don't mention another title I have to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it almost becomes stressful. It I, really does. I, it does. It does. I, 
so now almost the show dictates what I read. And then occasionally I'll slide in a book for saying, darn it, this is a book I just absolutely, whatever it is, speaks to my soul. And I have to read. And I'm going to take a break from reading whatever we're going to read for the show. I revolt. I revolted this week. Um, or I, I rebelled, I guess we could say. Um, I With my awesome library card that I'm taking way too many books out of the library with, um, I revolted and I picked up a book that is not science fiction nor is it fantasy. Well, some people might say it's fantasy. Um, Clive Cussler's Havana uh, Storm with Dirk Pitt. Savannah Storm? Is Havana, Havana? Havana Storm. Is that one of his new releases? It's one of the newer releases, yeah. Uh, newer, okay. <laughs> Clive Cussler. What was that panel I saw at Conquest? You're, that's guilty pleasure material. There we go, yes. Yes, which I am not... I'm not going to judge you because I grew up on Clive Cussler. And there's a real art to guilt to writing guilty pleasure stuff. Yes, there. Yes, there, there is. There really is because you know you've got to tap into that fun aspect. Anyway, so that's what I'm reading right now. I'm I'm about two. Uh, maybe I'm about a third of the way through. So and and it's weird. He's got kids now. I I skipped a couple of books there. So it's um yeah. Anyway. I'm sure I'll so who, write my response later. Who's the protagonist for that now? It's So it's Dirk Pitt still. Okay, because I didn't know if Dirk Pitt had been retired. He's not retired. Um, he's married now, which is weird, and uh, which, which is cool, you know, but it, it's from the last book I read to this. Um, Giordi, uh, Al Giardino's still in there. And okay. Dirk's got two kids that seem to be... Um, in the protagonist role as well, so I'm I'm curious to see how that pans out. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like what they're doing with Star Wars. You got to set up the young Jedi, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a YA series coming up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> got to make more money. Oh uh, well, that that anything else you want to you want to chat about? I I'm reading for the show, and f- so folks will hear the books I'm reading very, very quickly because we're bringing up uh, Robert Brockway and the Untouchables will be coming on here shortly. Yep. And we also should be expecting Lou Anders. We're going to be reading, we're both reading, or at least I'm picking up after I finish some other things. I will be uh, reading the follow-up to Frostborn, which I believe it's Nightborn, right? Yes, it is. All right. So we'll be, I know I'm reading, we'll start to soon be reading reading it. Yep. But uh, anything else that uh, you have on your list? I've got, um, we, we've got a Carrie Vaughn interview coming up for those urban fantasy fans out there. Um, her Kitty Norvell series is uh, a, a new installment is coming out in the very near future this August. So she's going to be coming on and we'll be chatting with her. Um, and what else? Um, I, I've got video games on the mind because E3 just came out. But um, I've, oh, yes, Midnight, <laughs> or Mid- E3 was just on. So, but um, Midnight uh, Crossroads by uh, Charlene Harris. Charlene Harris, I'm yeah. reading that right now for the show. And I'm actually going to be doing a book club with it. So a, a podcast book club I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of tentatively involved in. So we're reading that. And I'm going to be um, blogging about it on the, on the uh, website as well. So. Oh, yeah. excellent. The E3 mention cracks me up because my uh, my son just got back from a week-long overnight camp, <laughs> and he was complaining about how poor the internet was. He couldn't and he watch met, E3, yeah. He, he couldn't watch E3, and he was really... He was really disappointed. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I know what he's going to be doing all week this next week is catching up. Nice. 
All right, we better sign off. I think we've spoken longer than the interview with the weeks at this yeah, point. So. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, everybody, until next time, take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Hello, folks. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing here with Christy Cherish. And Brent Bowen. So today... One of the topics that Brent and I keep hinting we're going to talk about on the show is video games, particularly the storytelling. The narrative and writing that we see in games now has come a huge way since Nintendo. Um, And, you know, my humble opinion, uh, it's culminated in a new storytelling medium that rivals more traditional works for best sci-fi and fantasy. Um... I make no secret on the show on the fact that I think Mass Effect is one of the best pieces, hands down, of science fiction out there. And in general, video games are a new and exciting storytelling medium, and it's only going to get, we're only going to see more of that going forward. Yes, and on that note, today we are joined by two leading experts in the field of video game narrative, Karen and Patrick Weeks, lead editor, lead editor, and writer, respectively, at BioWare Studios in Edmonton. And I think this just continues on to prove the theory, as I've talked with Christy about, that I think Canadians are taking over the world. Uh, But uh, Patrick and Karen are responsible for much of the storytelling in the Dragon Age and Mass Effect series. And Patrick, as well, is the author of both Dragon Age and Mass Effect tie-in fiction, as well as a recent standalone series, Rogues of the Republic. Patrick and Karen, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having us. We are so excited to be here. Thanks. Well, we're excited to have you. And while I'm is excited, I hope Christy's locked herself in a closet to squeeze privately. <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I'm the straight man in, in this conversation, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us started and I gave a little sense of what you guys do in the the intro, but how did you guys both find your way into video games? So I was a short story writer and a novel writer originally. I studied English with a creative writing emphasis at school and was working on my fantasy and science fiction stories. Um, You know, had my novels, but uh, the conventional wisdom at the time was that you started with short stories, (laughs) use those to get an agent... (laughs) then sold a novel through the agent. After school, after going to Clarion, um, I got to a place where I was rewriting something one day and, you know, kind of got into it with this feeling of, oh, yeah, I'll just be, I'll be glad when this one is out. I just don't really feel like, and then I thought about it for a second and realized that I was writing something that my local writing group had really praised for its thoughtfulness and its sensitivity and its interesting, nuanced, intellectual ideas, but it wasn't actually something I would ever have voluntarily wanted to read for fun. It was kind of a hammer to the head moment, realizing that I was writing stuff I wouldn't actually want to read. And so I kind of, I ended up putting that stuff aside and going, okay, what would I actually want to read? And, you know, going back to the the stuff I enjoyed reading, the a little, you know, for me, it's it's uh, stuff that's more fun, that's goofier, a um, little less grim, and that stuff started selling, and it sold to someone um, at Amazing Stories, Dave Gross, who then went to work for Bioware, and uh, when I congratulated him and said, "Hey, let me know if Bioware needs anyone uh, to write Talking Swords," 
he, for them, because Bioware was one of my favorite companies, he said, we absolutely do. You should apply. And then it was dumb luck from there, I suppose. <laughs> Fun thing about that was that happened the day that we brought our first son home, home from the hospital after I had given birth to him. And so Patrick didn't actually tell me that this conversation had happened for about a week, right? Yeah, because you had said uh, you were pregnant. They had said, hey, you should think about applying. I went wow, I'm totally not going to do that because my wife's having a baby and this is not the time to uproot the family and move to Canada. And she said, you dumbass, you should, uh, <laughs> it's your dream job. You should really apply. And then they, yeah, and they mailed me back on the day we got home from the hospital. I just went, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit on that one for a few days. Well, so how long, how long did you sit on that with that big, <laughs> with the other big life event? place that week not it was it was maybe a week i don't know and you mentioned it somehow and i was like okay yes the timing is not great but (laughs) if you don't at least investigate this you're gonna kick yourself for the rest of your life so and we were living in the bay area in california at the time that's where we had met in school there and so we'd sort of settled there and he was gonna be a stay-at-home dad i was um, managing a team of technical editors at a chip making company in Silicon Valley. And so I was going to do a little bit of mat leave and go back and do that. Yeah, one thing led to another and our son's first trip was an international jaunt up to Edmonton in January. (laughs) And he he turned two months old when we were up here. So it was an adventure. It was. (laughs) And and after going to Edmonton in January, you two still both decided to move to Edmonton. You must have loved Bioware. (laughs) Well, we figured it wouldn't get get any worse than it was. And it's true because it was really cool it was kind of bad we still actually have a blanket that the flight attendant on the airplane gave us and we had we had our son in a little you know outfit we thought was kind of warm and they were like oh honey no (laughs) you need to wrap that child up really good and then they opened the door of the plane and we went oh my god but uh yeah it was it was in the negative 20s it was minus 30 Celsius. So um, they donated. That was your your uh, one of your child's uh, keepsakes at that yes. point is a, a an airline blanket. That's lovely. You're like, take this. You're gonna need it, obviously. <laughs> so it was the, the first, you know, our, our first taste of Canadian kindness. But needless to say, the interview went well. Yeah. And so I've been there about nine months or so. Karen was going to start looking for work up here, and what we saw was that Bioware at the time was actually looking to hire editors. They were looking for people who were not just voice editors, but who could also handle a lot of the the places between where, where writing and voiceover connected. When I was working there, it was just before Jade Empire shipped. So voiceover and complete voiceover was still kind of a new thing for the Bioware studio, and it was something they were trying to adjust to. So Karen, as a former lead managing editor at a technical studio, was actually a really good fit for that. Yeah, it was sort of this weird combination of life skills that I just randomly happened to not be so bad at. Um <laughs> It was, yeah, it was a little serendipitous and strange. They had some people that had done more kind of, I want to say classical, but more what you would think of as editing, copy editing and things like that. But um, yeah, as Patrick mentioned, uh, there is uh, an organizational component of it too. And so the editing team at Bioware, um, it's me and and four other fabulous people, there are three other fabulous people, four of us all together. And um, 
So we, part of what they wanted me to do was to organize the IP for what was going to turn into Dragon Age Origins. And there was a lot. David Gator is a prolific gentleman when it comes to world building. So he had written all these amazing things and dragons and stuff and history and countries. And it was just kind of all in his head or random notes all over the place. So actually the first thing I did was build a giant wiki and start trying to put some of that information into a place where we could access it. Because at the time it was, you know, the hope that we would move forward. And, and do several games based on this really extensive IP and we needed to kind of be able to remember four games and what that <laughs> dude was called back in Dragon Age Origins and, and, and things like that. So uh, that was part one and so that's a lot of what I'd done um, in, my, in my previous job and then there was also editing. Um, my background is actually my master's degree is in journalism and in, in so getting I discovered that I actually liked editing and making really punny headlines and things like that a lot more than hard <laughs> Hitting investigative journalism. I had to do some kind of awesome headline about a goat, and that was what just kind of sold it to me right there. Um, much to my professor's dismay, I'm sure. But um, yeah, that, that's still one of my shining moments, remembering that. So I'd never done that much voice editing, but I did do a lot of theater well, when I was younger. I would also I would also chime in. You say you hadn't done that much voice editing. I think one of the funniest things that people have asked us is whether it's okay that Karen edits my stuff. <laughs> um, it's a question. Any anytime we are both on something, someone someone has felt it like you know like it's a, like it's a scandal or something. And I don't think they realized that Karen had edited just about everything I had ever sent out for publication, you know, at least informally, well before we ever worked together. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I was always, you know, I mean, I think when you're an editor, it, it's something that is sort of, it's one of those natural, I don't know if talent's the right word. I think it's more an obsession with, <laughs> with kind of needing things to be right. And when you see someone putting an apostrophe and advertising that's wrong, you have to like pull your car over and fix it and stuff like that, which I have done. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, fortunately turned that into a skill so it didn't become something I had to take medication for at some point. What I was getting to with the voice editing, that was something that you said, that about the time that we started at BioWare, and it, this kind of loops back to what you were saying about um, narrative and video games and Christy, is that it was shifting from, like Baldur's Gate, everything was written. Uh, it was all reading it was more sort of like a giant choose-your-own-adventure book where you were reading and, and choosing things and choosing options that way. But voiceover was starting to become significant. And so it definitely shifted the kind of writing and editing that needed to be done in video games. From kind of interactive novel to interactive screenplay. Yeah. So that And the difference between editing screenplays or editing novels is... I don't know if significant is the right word, but it's a different mindset oh, yeah. that you have to be in and, and the lines have to be crafted differently. They need to be able to be spoken aloud and <laughs> the fancy words that you made up that have 17 syllables and 18 apostrophes in them might be a little difficult for someone to pronounce. I don't know that many apostrophes. <laughs> Lord help the people that do do the audiobooks for their whoever how much has been paid it is not enough yeah palace job's gonna be an audiobook and i was like really well good luck to them i'm so sorry they've done they've done a wonderful job i just yeah, i'm like i am amazing. i am so sorry that you had to say those words yes but so yeah, I've done theater for a long time, all in like college and in high school, and so I think that did help me get a sense of how you would say things, how, how to work lines so people could actually say them. And over the course of development, as, as we started, first it was characters, but then 
the protagonist wasn't voiced. Mm-hmm. And there's actually quite a bit of... Um, there was some contention. There's some contention about that. Like there are people who are saying, "Oh, but you know, I have a voice in my head when I'm playing uh, playing the character. You know, I have the accent. I know how it sounds. And if you force a voice on me, that's going to break break my immersion." And so there was there was a lot of discussion about that. But you know, just from a technical expense point of view, the writing went from the least expensive part of the game to the most expensive part <laughs> of the game once you had to start paying voice actors and things like that. So it was a very interesting shift in the way that games were written. That's great. For- perspective my actually my wife's uncle is a playwright and my wife's aunt is actually an actress that was in the original cast of the fantastics so that yeah that that discussion around i'm i'm sitting here envisioning as you're walking us through your experiences how i'm seeing video games all of a sudden being translated into digital plays that was a good overview of some of the different skills that you that you brought to bear from your own personal experiences and i'm watching that evolution and finding that very fascinating for you patrick i mean so you walked through your journey a little bit and was it as simple from a skill or talent standpoint say well i can write a short story i can write a novel so surely i can write for a video game what what talent, as Karen was kind of walking through those evolution of her skills and talents, was was it pretty much I can just take that talent and apply it, or was there something else for you as well when that you had to take on and learn from a talent standpoint, or something that you brought? Well, I think I think my my blarney certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> So much nicer word than I was going to use. Well, I mean, There's I was, a lot of learning that all of us engage in. I wasn't sure what the rating was. So, you know, I think that, well, I've been fortunate, first off, in addition to, you know, writing stories, writing novels, unsurprisingly for someone who writes at Bioware, I suppose, uh, I was, you know, big into role-playing games beforehand. So I actually had run role-playing games for years. And there's nothing like teaching you what plots do and don't work and which plots make the players happy and which plots make the players grumpy and frustrated, like running a role playing game. So that was very fortunate for me. I had, you know, I'd kind of gone through that particular trial by fire and learned some valuable lessons about what not to do to players. And also, I've just, I've always been very, luckily, writing at Bioware really played to my strengths because I have always been pretty good at dialogue and almost universally politely suggested that my setting is not my strongest area. So fortunately at Bioware, there are people who get paid to make the setting, (laughs) so I don't have to. And I can yes, just focus on writing fun banter. <laughs> so the complimentary, I know what the deficiency of my talent is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, get, and, and work with the team. <laughs> yeah, my delicate way of, yeah, my first drafts are always, this pretty much takes place in a white room. And uh, I think of my initial draft, I wrote a, I wrote a, a Victorian fantasy murder mystery Paris at one point. bring that up. And someone just said, Patrick, you cannot just say London is entirely made from cobblestones and fog. And I was like, no, I've, I think I've basically covered it. No. And my dialogue was really good. Um, I was the first person who said that. And not, and not, the, and only. not the only one, I don't think. You could have at least put a pub in there. 
Yeah. I mean, you pretty much fall down in London and you find a pub. Yeah. Warm beer. Or beer. <laughs> Warm beer, specifically. But um. so, so beyond, you know, beyond being able to focus on dialogue and learning, you know, what's going to make players grumpy, it's really figuring out the question of when to give the player choices. What is, for a Bioware game, enough choices that the player feels invested, but not so many that your plot spider webs out into something you can never actually deliver on. The only way to do that is to try and fail multiple times. My first lead writer was Dave Gator, uh, who then I again worked with on Inquisition. I spent a lot of time actually with Mike Laidlaw as my lead writer. And it was interesting because one of the things he would do is he would give cautions. He would say, yeah, okay, this, it seems like the plot might be getting a little complex here. And if you pushed it, he would go, okay. And he would never flat out say, you know, dude, you're being dumb. Simplify your plot. What he would do is go, okay, all right, I'm still having a little trouble seeing it. Maybe you could just do it in a flowchart for me. <laughs> and if you could do it in a flowchart, then either you discovered, then either he would go, oh, great, now I see how it works. Or, as is more often the case, you would get into page eight of the flowchart and realize <laughs> that it was possible you had made something more complex than it needed to be. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> One thing, you, you brought up Baldur's Gate. Uh a little while ago. And that one really sort of hits a note with me. One of the things that people talk about a lot is how the storytelling in video games have changed so much. Where have you guys seen the most advances? And as a follow-up, what are the things that video games offer as a storytelling medium that we don't see anywhere else? Good question. That is a good question. <laughs> um, There's a fantastic comedy routine by someone who talks about the difference between, you know, going to a reading a book, going to a movie and playing a video game. Go, playing a video game in many ways is the equivalent of reading a book and you get to the end of chapter four and it says before you're allowed to play chapter five, there's going to be a quiz. <laughs> what what do you think the narrative themes were? <laughs> and you have to answer properly or you have to read the chapter again. On one hand, that is that is often frustrating and, and, and figuring out how to walk that line of frustration is a balance we look at very carefully. On the other hand, when the player does it, the player has a sense of accomplishment that you don't get from watching a movie or reading a book. There is a sense of, I did this, as opposed to, I watched this. And that allows for the player to be, I think, um, immersed and emotionally engaged at a level that you don't see in many other media, at least when we do it right. We work with a whole lot of talented people. You were very kind to make us sound so involved in things, and we have been around for a while, and we're quickly reaching old fart status in our office. But <laughs> we work with a whole lot of talented people in so many areas of of making video games and I don't understand probably at least half of them when you get into the technical artistry of, of what goes on in the games we make. I, it's magic as far as I'm concerned. And so one of the challenges, honestly, of, of working in a big game company is there's a lot of, there are a lot of us and we are all very enthusiastic and passionate about what we do. And our ideas don't always all mesh. And mm, yes. um, the, the leaders that we have are very effective at Sort of keeping the eyes on the prize, setting the theme of a mission, um, letting us know this is what we're working for on this goal, like Mass Effect 3, for example. A lot of World War II yes. 
parallels were drawn. So we, had, you say, we had World War II poets on the wall. Yeah. We had, yeah, we had, we had everything. And it was every plot had to, in some way, convince you that, okay, you know, if this is the guns of Navarone, if it, you know, this is, this is the Dirty Dozen plot, this is that plot, you know, just that something would fit in that way, narratively, that would have that kind of theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it helps to keep you focused. And when you think, oh, wow, I have this great idea and this fabulous thing is going to be great. And, and, you know, everyone else can sort of say, yes, that is a fabulous idea, but does it really enhance the Normandy landing that we're trying to do? The beach is not the, sorry, <laughs> not the beach at Normandy. <laughs> that was a bad example and I apologize. Um, well, it does show how committed we were to the vision. Though. Well, yes, that's true. But, you know, to keep everyone focused, so we're supporting each other and building on each other's ideas rather than kind of butting up against each other. I think the way that I've seen it change the most over our time there is that it ha- it has gone from being the writers are pretty much the ones who create and deliver the narrative in the form of a written story to there are actually fewer words, relatively speaking. If there's a scene that can be more effective when you can see the look on a character's face or by dancing, or by shooting bottles, or something like that, the cinematic design has become really integral, and the tools have gotten so incredible that, you know, it's a level of, I don't know, virtual reality. It looks like people's faces, and they can make facial expressions that look like people. Digital acting? Digital acting, yes. (laughs) That's what the thing we're supposed to call it. I think, yeah, at least on the writing side, that's been an area that after every game I've shipped, when I go back and look at it, there are scenes when I can say, oh man, I wish I trusted the other departments more. You know, I go back and I look at Mass Effect 2. It seems I was really, really proud of, you know, like Tally getting exiled, things like that. And I can look at those now and go like, oh, actually the voice actor was really doing a fantastic job. I didn't have to say that someone was sad there. Their voice actually sold that all by itself. You know, oh, oh, the body language sold that. You know, it was actually on Mass Effect, it was always a little bit difficult because, you know, if you're writing an emotional scene involving Quarians, they wear helmets. They don't have faces. So you're you're like, really, without words, the cinematic guy is going to be able to convey that this person is sad just from a helmet? And, you know, Lo and behold, yes, they did. You guys touched on this with the the parallels that you were drawing to World War II and kind of the mafia-style mob boss board that you had up as more of inspiration. And then, Karen, early on in the discussion, you were talking about the wiki. And I'm sure you, you're introducing new writers into the field all the time. Yep. When you're breaking that new... And, 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 Patrick, you were even talking about this trust issue. So if I were a new writer trying to break into video games and you were to walk us through the process of planning a storyline for a video game like Dragon Age or or Mass Effect, you've touched on a couple mechanisms to get you both into story. What are some of the other mechanisms? What what does that planning or process look like to get into a storyline like that? The writers and editors work together. It's usually, if I remember right, it's uh, it was it would have been Karen and Dave Gator, the lead writer for Dragon Age Inquisition, who came up with the writing style guide. Yeah, the style guide. I mean, it sort of evolves. Ideally, that we we have one for a game, and then another game comes, and then we tweak it a little bit. But yeah, I mean, based on Origins and DA two, we sort of took that run and and again based on we were working with the whole new tool set which is you know a whole other area there's all the narrative and stuff but there's a lot of functional technical stuff that is tricky so yeah that has to be wiki sure so with the writing guide at least on a line by line basis the goal is to say okay on mass effect 
Paraphrases can't be any longer than 30 characters, and individual lines, uh, shepherd's lines, shouldn't be longer than 100 characters. People who aren't shepherd aren't supposed to be longer than 120, and it will actually break if it goes over 140. In Dragon Age, just because the language is a little bit more formal, it's more like 120 for uh, the hero, be it Hawk, the Inquisitor. Uh, well, obviously it doesn't apply to the hero Ferelden, since they didn't talk. So we have those kind of style guides. There's a hilarious section in the style guide that just says, here's what swearing we do and don't use. Honestly, that's my favorite part. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> The swear guides together is just the best. Some of the things I write are amazing. <laughs> and not PG-13. It's really not PG-13, no, but it's like... <laughs> Like here's what here's what you can say here's what every, here's what you can use sparingly here's what you have to justify to the lead writer every time you use it and here's what you will never get to say. I I wish I could be in on some of those. Christy knows I'm I have a 13 year old son that loves. Uh, loves a game by a uh, different developer, the Uncharted series. Oh yes, yeah, lovely. And, and if I could turn Sully's mouth off. <laughs> That would be a great game for him. See, but, but I kind of like Sully's mouth. I, I think that's a highlight for the teenagers. <laughs> the salty language highlight? Like, I, I would think it was a highlight for them. You know, they, they don't get to hear it as, as often anywhere else unless it's in a um, school room. But, you know. Or die hard or something or like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess my take on it is, is if we're going to use it, we got to use it right. It needs to be appropriate and, and well invoked. And if that's if we do that well, then fine. <laughs> Sorry for the aside. I just had. Oh, to no, no, that's good. No. Oh, goodness. Yeah, solely is the bane of my existence. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think beyond that, going beyond the line level, I, I think there is um, there is kind of, well, the good news is once you have like a, a new writer to the Dragon Age world, the easiest thing we can say is play the Dragon Age games. That's the good news when we have gotten to an IP that's been established enough through several games that, you know, we now have a playable IP builder. Beyond that, one of the core things we, we look at is, at least in Dragon Age, um... The goal is that everything comes down to non-racial specific humanity. That's one of the goals when we look at plots, when we look at characters. It should be more Marvel than DC, if that makes sense. Um, if you think of DC's characters uh, in comics as being kind of more mythical, uh, simpler, not in a bad way, just in their more their more archetypes. Whereas Marvel characters are going to be more human uh, in both, you know, in both their benefit, their uh, their their good character traits and their flaws. And the goal is that Dragon Age characters should always be like that. And that if you if you scratch beneath the surface of all the history, uh, there's a reason that when we write in codexes, codices, sorry. Codex uh, entries. <laughs> codex entries so that we never have to argue about how to pluralize it. Yeah. Um, that all of them are all of them are secondhand information. We never flat out say the maker did this and that's absolutely canonical. We say the Chantry teaches that the Maker did this, and here's a here's a song written about the Maker as recorded by these other people. And we never flat out say one way or the other because history is mutable. And when you look behind the history, both religious, political, everything, it's almost always going to come down to human people making decisions for good or ill for human reasons. 
Even if they're elves. Even if they're elves or dwarves, or yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting um, you mentioned about the diversity as well because Bioware's big on uh, having a lot of um, LGTB characters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how, like, I mean, is that, where, where did that come from? Actually, um, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Dave Gator just did, again, this is like we're turning this into the Dave Gator show, just did an interview. I'm looking up on my phone right now with whom he did it, but sort of talking about the the origins of that and how that got started. And um, the first non-straight character that a Bioware game had was in Jade Empire. And he talks about, and I've heard him talk about this several times, and so I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly, but um, he was not involved with that. And that was an idea that came up from other other developers who were working on it, who were straight dudes. And he was really surprised because he, as a gay man himself, had never really thought that was a thing that could happen. And... It kind of opened up the awareness, I think, for a lot of people of, oh, wait, this, this is a thing we can do, you know, and inevitably, because another reality of, of making games, and frankly, something that, that can affect games a lot, is they are moneymakers, or hopefully, but they cost a lot of, generally, the AAA games anyway, the big ones, although indies or indie game development is opening up whole new worlds, and that's a, a different topic, but, um, you know, up to that point, making games was really expensive, and so... There was the fear of, oh, well, what if it's, what if doing something like that um, makes them not financially viable or someone will publish it? At that point, Bioware looked for publishers before we were part of EA, and it ended up kind of not being that big a deal. And so everyone went, great, let's do it again. You know, so it sort of set that bar. And then the next game, we'd explore something new and put in something new. And uh, it just kind of built from there. And now it's something, you know, I mean, I think inclusion is a huge part of the Bioware culture and something that the company has valued from its very beginnings. And that's, I think, part of why we're both really honored to work here because it's really amazing to be a part of a group of people for whom that's kind of a fundamental quality that they want their games to have. It's funny because of the way Karen said it. Um, it okay. did. It, what's that? No, what did I say wrong? no, nothing, nothing <laughs> wrong. No, it's just it was, and I'm not counting myself among this. This was, you know, before before I was there, but it was generally a bunch of straight white dudes. Yeah. But a lot of the Bioware culture is a deep and abiding love of games and pride in the games we're making and a desire to share that. And I think that that is where most of our drive for that comes from. If we can do one thing, it's to say, no matter who you are, we want you to be able to play our games. Well, and fundamentally, I think that also is part of what role-playing is and Mm -hmm. the fact that we make role-playing games. And if you're role-playing, you get to be whoever you want to be. And there should be, ideally, no limit on that. And you should be able to be wherever on the spectrum of gender you want to be and race and sexuality and sexuality and all of that. And and it doesn't mean we always do it perfectly. But for us, that just means we are always looking for ways to say, here's how we can represent people. Yeah, here's how, someone, or, here's how know, someone could see themselves in the game. And it's you know, a stepping stone for a while. I mean, honestly, a lot of it is... Um, the limitation of technology and that's something you hear but it's it's true you know and people say oh it's just an excuse but it is difficult to you know making male and female characters you know for a while when you're making something making a game you know male is sort of the default character you can have and then you push 
to include females and then you push to include you can get more detail in you get so many points to spend right sort of like making a character sheet so it's like where do you want to put your points okay for this technology we want to put our points into allowing you to make whatever kind of face you want to make in whatever shade of skin you want to have have scars be old be young and whatever and that's where we want to put our money for the budget for this one and then next time you look at something else you haven't done and you try and put your points into that visit adventures in sci-fi publishing for show notes links reviews special guests videos and more email us at adventures in sci-fi publishing at gmail.com sound effects from the free sounds project music by asymmetry found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>